I am the older sister in my family. I have a younger brother. His name is Matthew. He is married to the lovely Amanda, and they live in Kansas City, and they have two awesome four-year-old twin boys. We are three years apart, which means we grew up, you know, in a lot of the same sorts of spaces of life. We were in the same elementary school for a couple of years and the same high school for a year. And he actually went to Baylor, so we were even at college for a year together. We overlapped a bit, just the two of us. Uh, We were close and yet also made each other crazy, as brothers and sisters often do. But our distance apart, and me being the older sister, made me just think that I was perhaps put on this earth to be another parent in the life of my brother. I bossed him around so much. I told him what to do. I asked him to do things for me. I acted like another parent, and it went on for years. I mean, of course, my parents tried to stop, but then I got smart, and I did it when they weren't looking and when they didn't know about it. And Yet one day, my younger brother was bigger than me. He put a stop to it. I used my words, he used his size, and we made a truce from all of those bossy years. I wonder, do you have a sibling? Do you have multiple siblings? Where are you in the birth order? What has your relationship been like? Has it been different through the years? Do you have someone who is like a brother or a sister to you? Maybe one you would have chosen. I get to see family dynamics kind of glimpse in and and peek at some of these things when we gather to plan funerals. When there are conversations following the death of a loved one, you find out some of those sibling dynamics. You discover who is the decision maker, who in the family has it all together and knows very clearly what they want or what they think the other person would have wanted and how everything should be done. And then there's other people who are kind of making it up as they go along. And each day is a new day and we'll figure it out as we go. There are siblings where one is the helper, always saying yes always there, going above and beyond, and sometimes they're really happy about it, and sometimes they're really, really worn down by it. Sometimes there's one who is just away and gone and would rather just stay out of it altogether. In this passage that we turn to today, it it is famously about two brothers and their father. It often gets called the prodigal son story, which is a misnomer of sorts, because it is as just, about, just as much about the extravagant forgiveness of a father as it is about the self-righteous resentment of the older brother as it is about the reckless and wasteful behavior of the younger one. That's the prodigal part, the reckless and wasteless or wastefulness. And, and usually that centers on the younger brother, but it is as much a story about these other participants as it is about the younger son. Well, Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem, and he's traveling about the cities and the villages. He's turned his attention toward all that that will happen in the capital city in in Jerusalem because it is there that he's going to be arrested, betrayed, tried, and condemned, and, and crucified, which is what he came to do. His focus is on Jerusalem, but he's on the road for a while. 
He spends time traveling in and out of cities, going in and out of villages, and what we find is when he's there, he's teaching people about the kingdom of God, and he's healing them of their illnesses and their diseases. And this passage is a parable. It's a story that he uses to illustrate a point. It's a teaching story. And it is the third parable in a series of three that he tells that is about things and people that are lost. The first is uh, about a sheep that gets lost. There were a hundred sheep, and, and one gets lost, and the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one. And then there's a woman who has ten coins, and she loses one, and she tears the whole house apart and looks everywhere to find the one. And then there's not a sheep or a coin that gets lost. There's a son who is lost. Well, it's important to note who Jesus is teaching this to. I mean, he's teaching it to all of us that would ever read it throughout all of the centuries, but the people that were there in his midst at the point in time that he is first delivering this story, and you have to go to the beginning of chapter 15, the first verse, to know who's there. When you do, you find that there is a gathering of tax collectors and sinners who have come near to listen to him. There are people that a lot of people don't like. The people who have a bad reputation, the people who make trouble, the people who exploit or extort others, the people who are notorious for their bad decisions, the people who are considered the outcasts and the lowly, they are there. But it's not just them who are there. No, you see, in this passage also you find that the scribes and the Pharisees are there, which means that the highest of the high, the most righteous of all the people, the keepers of the law, the teachers, the the moral authorities, they're there too. And in fact, they're there and they're unhappy because they say this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Well, that's the context for which Jesus then starts telling these stories about the lost things. We come to this story, the parable of the sons, and we learn Jesus says, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them went to his father and said, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. A totally and radically offensive statement. In this context, especially in this time, he is saying, "Um, Dad, I wish you were dead. But you're not, so maybe you'll give me that which you'll give me when you're gone. It was an affront. It was rude. It was culturally unacceptable. But he did it. And his father was gracious because his father said okay. He said, I will. And he divided his property. He divided his property between them, the two brothers, the two sons that he had. He would have done that in a way where uh, in a family in this period of time, the older brother would have gotten a double portion, a double helping, a double blessing. So they would have had two times the amount of inheritance as the rest of their brothers. And so in this instance, there are two siblings. So the younger brother has about a third of the total family portfolio, if you will. The older brother is going to get the double portion. So they take the one portion, but it's not sitting in an account, and it's not funds that can be cashed out. It it is land that has to be sold, or sheep, or goats, or wheat, or, or crops that have to be exchanged for money that can then be given to the younger son. So it takes a couple of days, which, if you can imagine, are a really awkward couple of days. 
in their household. A few days later, the younger son takes what is given to him. He gathers all that he had, and he traveled to a distant country where there he squandered his property in dissolute living. Doesn't really tell us what he did. We don't really need it to tell us. We can think of the things that one would do if you took all of the money at a, a, and ran off far from your family and made decisions for which you thought that there would be no consequence. Live it up. Enjoy it. He burned through all the money he had. Well, while he was away, he spent everything, and he got to the place and the point in time that there was a a famine in the country around. So at that point, he was out, but not only was he out, but everybody else was, was living on a, a thin margin. Everybody else's cupboards were pretty bare. Nobody had a lot of surplus to be able to help him out. And so it was starve or, or find something to do. And so he got himself a job. He went and he hired him out to hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him out into the fields to feed the pigs. Well, this is not a job for a uh, faithful young Jewish boy. Not that he was terribly faithful at this point. But pigs were considered a, an unclean animal. You didn't associate with them. You didn't eat pork. You didn't touch pigs. You definitely didn't go work to feed and raise them. He didn't have a lot of options. So for him, working in a field where he is earning some meager wages by feeding the pigs is like the lowest of the low. It is hitting his rock bottom. And we know that because he looks at the pigs and he sees the things that they are eating and he thinks that looks pretty good. There's a painting of uh, this, uh, this prodigal son painting that has a young boy who's in a field with pigs. You can see the way that the artists try to capture the, the angst that perhaps he had or the, the fact that he was a, a, a bit on the thin side. He has uh, really very little clothing and probably very little belongings. He's there amongst the hogs. And the way that artists use light is always profound in a painting too, right? So the boy's face is dark and turned towards the pigs, but... The light is still on him. The light is on his back. If he would just turn around, he would find his face in the sun. He does. He does. He sits there at the lowest of low, in the bottom of the bottom, and he, he says, if, if only I could go back to my father's house. The people who work in my father's, uh, in my father's household, they have bread to spare they have it better than I do. I should turn around and go home. I should go back and ask my father and ask for his forgiveness. And he does. He rehearses what he's going to say. He says, I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, which is like him saying, I've sinned against God and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, so would you just treat me like one of your hired hands. He doesn't expect to be brought back into the family or restored, but he does see his need to turn and go the other way. You know, that's what repentance is. It's turning and going the other way. It's instead of going away from God and where God has called us to be, it's turning and orienting ourselves and our lives toward the one who really loves us. So he gets up and he goes, and he goes home. He sets off to go see his father, 
And it tells us that his father, while he is, while his son is still far off, while he is making his way down the road on his journey back towards home, his father sees him while he is far off. And he, he is filled with compassion, the father. He runs and he puts his arms around his son and he kisses him. In these verses, these couple of verses, it is so filled with just incredible details. I don't want you to miss this. While the son is far off, his father spots him, which means his father is on the edge of the porch watching and waiting. Can you imagine? Maybe he went there every night wondering, hoping, would this be the day maybe my son would come home? Always holding out hope, looking in the distance, hoping, expecting, desiring that his son would appear. And the day that he does, he sees him from far away. And he runs to him. If you are a Jewish man, if you are a father of a household and you are a um, well-established family, you don't run. It's undignified. But he did. He flung himself off that porch. He ran out and he grabbed his son and he put his arms around him and he kissed him. It is this overwhelming display of affection, of love, of emotion. And not only that, but it's done publicly for all to see. Because you see, when the son came to his father and said, I want my inheritance, and they had to go sell the land or the crops or the flocks or whatever it was, everyone in town knew that this man's son made the shameful decision to come to his father to ask for his inheritance. He had been disgraced publicly, and yet he is going to restore his son with a public act of affection out there in the open for all to see. His son is welcomed home. His son starts his speech. Remember, he had practiced what he was going to say when he got there, when he got home to be in front of his father. He starts in, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But he doesn't even get to that last sentence. He doesn't get to the last part about, would you just take me in as someone hired in your household? Before he even gets there, his father interrupts him. And he says to a slave, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Get the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. He is saying, I want to restore this son to my household. For he was dead. And he is alive again. He was lost, and he has been found. And they began to celebrate. Rembrandt painted this scene. The prodigal son, it's a fairly notorious painting. A father uh, bent over, hugging, loving his son, who is groveling on his knees, who is in tattered clothing, one shoe, one sandal, one bare foot, and in front of the other people who are observing this gracious act of the father who has been so offended but who responds with such grace and such love. They throw a party, a big party, and they celebrate. The story doesn't end here. It continues with the other brother, but I want to pause here for just a moment because some of us, we know what it's like to be the younger brother. We know what it's like to run the opposite direction of where we ought to be, to go far from home and to make choices that functionally destroy our lives that take everything that was good and valuable and life-giving and, 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 and waste it into things that don't matter or don't help, even though they did for a little while. 
you are welcome at home. There is a father who stands waiting for you, longing for you to return to him. If you are the younger brother, go home. Receive the grace of the father. Let yourself be fully and entirely forgiven. And then enjoy the party. But it doesn't end there. There is the other brother, the older brother. We find out that he is out in the field as the party gets going. He's still out there because he's the older brother and he's responsible and does his job. So he's probably out there working. He's supervising the functions of the family business. He's doing his job. He's still out in the field and he comes and he approaches the house and he hears music and he notices that there is dancing and there is a party going on at home and he calls to one of the slaves and he says, hey, what is happening? What is happening in my house? And he tells him. He says, "Uh, your brother has come. Your brother has come home and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's gotten him back safe and sound. And the older brother is angry. He gets mad. He's not excited that his brother is home. He's not thankful that they're celebrating him. He is angry, and he refuses to go in. He stays out there in the field in the darkness, sulking, counting, perhaps. I have done. And he, you know, kind of the way we do. He's out there, and some amount of time goes by, enough that the father realizes My elder son is not at the party. He's nowhere to be found. And and the father then decides to go find him. And again, another act of undignified behavior. The father, who is the host of the party, with all of the people who have gathered, he leaves the party to go find the son. It's worth noting that they didn't just have like a little family dinner. And they, like, looked around the table at the ten of them and realized that the one brother is not there. No, no. when you feel, kill the fatted calf, you're having a party for the whole town to come. There were massive amounts of people there. And the father is the host, and he leaves his home and goes out into the field to find the younger brother. This is how much he loves him. He goes after him, and he begins to plead with him. But he answered, and pleading with him, The father is pleading with the son. The son answers his father, listen, for all of these years, I have been working like a slave for you. I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never even given me such as a young goat that I could have a celebration with my friends. Can you hear him? I have done everything right. I have followed the rules. I have kept all your laws. I have gone to church. I have prayed all the prayers. I've sacrificed the stuff and... He gets the good. I mean, sometimes it shows up like, why do bad things happen to good people? And why do good things happen to people that make all their wrong choices? He's out there thinking, this is not fair. When this son of yours came back, he doesn't even call him his brother. When this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your property with dissolute living, no, he says, with prostitutes, you have killed the fatted calf for him. And so the father says, son, you are always with me. As if that's not enough. But the father is always with him. You are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours, 
He was dead and he has come to life. He was lost and he has been found. Father says, this is worthy of rejoicing. And that is where the parable ends. We don't get resolve on what happens for that older brother. I don't know. Did he go into the party? Did he decide to celebrate? Did he go in and sulk in the corner? Did he stay outside? Did he decide to then start his own rebellion? I don't know. I think it's left open-ended quite intentionally. Because those scribes and the Pharisees were probably meant to find themselves in the character of the older brother. And there are many times that many of us, myself included, find that that's us too. So by not answering it, causes us to answer it. We have to think, if I'm the older brother, do I realize that I have been given everything freely? Have I been trying to... uh, to earn my reward? Have I been keeping a list of all the good things I've done for God and all of the reasons that he should bless me, self-righteously propping myself up, thinking about how good of a kid I've been? The thing is, is that he has his own problem because the love of the Father does not come from earning it. It is freely given. The older brother, in order to have a right relationship again, in order to be a fully participating member of this household, he has to have his own turn. He's got to turn from his self-righteousness to go into the party to celebrate. Now, one important last detail that comes up in part thanks to the work of Tim Keller, who writes a book called The Prodigal God. He says, It did cost the older brother something. You see, because all the father had was his. In fact, the other two-thirds that was left, everything they had was to be his inheritance. So when the father said, get my finest robe and put it on the younger son, when he said, get a ring and place it on his finger, when he said, kill the fatted calf, Throw a party. He is chipping away at the older brother's inheritance. It is costing him something for his younger brother to be reconciled. Keller points out, though, yeah, that's true. The right and the true older brother, a faithful older brother, part of having the double blessing and the... uh, And the extra inheritance is that it comes with responsibility. If he had been doing his job rightly, when his brother, his younger brother, went to his father and said, give me half of my inheritance, he would have pulled his brother aside and said, you do not do that. That is not okay. That is disgraceful. That's not how we act in this family. And if that didn't work, when his younger brother left for the faraway land and went and lived a wild life, he would have chased his brother down. He would have been expected to go out of the household to go seek to reconcile his younger brother. But he actually didn't fulfill all of his responsibilities. This older brother in the parable is not a faithful older brother. He missed the mark. But what you're supposed to know and realize and come to appreciate is is that the faithful older brother is the one who is telling the parable. It is in Jesus Christ who is standing before them all, 
He is the one who said, I will go to the farthest distant country. And in fact, I will leave heaven and come to earth. I will set aside everything. I will give up everything I have for everything I have is yours. And I will give it all away and I will lose my life so that you may live. Jesus is a faithful older brother and he chases us down. And he invites us to come home. And he gives up and pays the price so that we could be brought back wholly and fully into the family of God. This is a story of unbelievable grace. The grace of a gracious father, but the, the servant love of Christ our Lord, who invites us to receive that love and to come running into the Father's presence and to join him at the party. We are invited, my friends. We are wanted. We are loved. Will you pray with me? Holy God, the power in this story is not just merely a metaphor for the way that we live, yet many of us look at those two brothers and we think, yeah, that, that's been me. Maybe it was then or is now. There's a call to come home in that. But even more, if, if we hear the words, if we understand the symbolism, we, we realize that we are loved so extravagantly that it's not actually, uh, uh, the, the recklessness and extravagance in this parable is not in that younger son's living, though it might have been a bit reckless. The extravagance is in the Father's unending grace. Lord, that you love us like that. Wow. May we not hear this good news and be unchanged. May it shape our lives. May it restore us to the family of God. May it fill our hearts and cause us to overflow, knowing that we are wanted, that we are loved, that we are received, and that we are celebrated. And even more than that, we can be the ones that stand on the porch or run down the road because there's other people who are still lost. May we all be found, and may we be found in you. Oh, Lord, we pray. Amen. As we come to our last song, I just invite you that if there is a, a, a calling, a nudge, a something you need to pay attention to, something that God kind of is working up in your heart, that you would pay attention to it. Um, if you, if this sermon or any sermon ever raises questions and you're thinking, hmm, I, have, I do have some stuff I've kind of unre- left unresolved or I need to work through, and you ever want to do that with somebody, um, I would be honored to do that with you, to answer questions or to kind of make you, you know, kind of help process through um, some of the things that life experiences and where God is at work. Um, you don't have to do this alone. And if you don't have a church family and you want this to be your church family, come talk to me. We can make that happen. We would love to receive you. As we sing our final song together, Would you stand as you're able?